Welcome to Behavioural Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioural science and how it's made. Today, we're talking with Leonardo Bernstein from the University of Chicago. Thanks so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for talking to me. The idea of this podcast is to talk about the kind of process of beginning and the middle and the end of a research project. And I was hoping we could talk about uh, your paper, Misperceived Social Norms, Female Labour Force Participation in Saudi Arabia, which you co-authored with Alessandra Gonzalez and David Yana Gizawa dropped. Um, I was wondering if just to begin with, you could kind of summarise what you feel like the main message of the paper is for anyone who hasn't read it, who's listening. I see. Okay, thanks. So it's a paper in which we studied. So I've been interested in this aspect of pluralistic ignorance for a while. By pluralistic ignorance, I mean a situation where most people actually hold a certain set of opinion, a certain view, but they incorrectly believe that most other people are against it and end up acting as if they are against it as well. So the, in this situation, can persist for a while because if you're afraid that most other people will judge you for expressing your opinion, in a certain way, you're not going to do it. And other people are not going to learn that you hold this opinion. And if other people behave the same way, you're also not going to learn that they actually actually hold the same opinion as you do. So we try to approach this project in the beginning by trying to understand whether we could actually be in a situation like that, some sort of, we can call it some sort of misperception trap in a way in which, you know, our, our, our hypothesis, our question was, could it be the case that Actually, privately, most men in Saudi Arabia would actually support female labor force participation outside of home, or incorrectly believe that most other men would be against it. Mm -hmm. So that's how this was the starting point. And if that was the case, what would happen if you actually corrected those perceptions, right, about others? Would you actually start seeing changes in in labor supply behavior of their wives? So that's kind of how we, we started looking at this project. And that was a question we're looking after. Mm-hmm. And did you discuss with your co-authors, did you think of any other context that you would have wanted to test this kind of persistence mm-hmm. of, of pluralistic ignorance and information provision to change it? Or from the beginning, were you certain that was the problem? <coughs> yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a good question because, you know, since we're discussing the research uh, process, right, it's... Uh, a lot of the papers are created or generated when ideas meet opportunities, right? And this is, in, and I have actually two different papers on pluralistic ignorance, and they are both good examples of this aspect of ideas meeting opportunities. The first one, I'll, I'll tell you about the Saudi paper in a sec, but the first one was this paper that I did on with, some, with Georgi Egorov and Stefano Fiorin on understanding how Trump's rise in popularity in the U.S. actually aggregated information. So the, the idea there was similarly that the hypothesis was that we could be in a situation of pluralistic ignorance, but kind of in the other direction where most people, not most people, but there could be a number of people who privately were more intolerant, more xenophobic, but incorrectly believed that they were a very niche group. And, you know, instead of us aggregating information and telling them, hey, you're not alone, which is something I wouldn't want to do, but naturally this this happened through Trump's rising popularity, meaning, meaning, you know, there was a candidate that from the beginning was endorsing these types of opinions and people observed his popularity and updated that if he's getting all these votes, 
it must be that this opinion is somewhat popular, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how the process worked there. So again, so we ran this, you know, and if that's somewhat popular, then I can actually feel more comfortable expressing these types of views if I hold them. So that's a process, as I say, in terms of opportunity, there was an election happening. And uh, I think part of the mission as researchers is to be paying attention to things that are happening in the real world. And sometimes you have the opportunity to do a study or serve your experiment while things are unfolding. And that was the case. We actually ran experiments around the election time, presidential election in the US, 2016. There was an opportunity. Now, for the Saudi project, in terms of opportunities, I was, I was actually visiting Harvard a few years back and talking to David Yanagizawa about ideas and discussing these ideas of pluralistic ignorance. And, and then there was, at the same time, a call for grants at the Kennedy School, where he, at Harvard Kennedy School, where he, where he was a faculty member back then, for research proposals that study Saudi issues of Saudi labor markets with some good funding opportunities. There was just uh, some group at the Kennedy School, EPOD, had established a partnership in Saudi Arabia to fund these projects. So that was his opportunity to do something there. And then we started talking and said, well, I mean, what if that's actually happening there, this situation of, of misperceptions? It seems like a super interesting setting. So we did not, I did not wake up one day and said, I want to study this in Saudi Arabia. I was like, I want to study this. I think it's an important question. And I think this could be happening in countries that we traditionally view as being very traditional in terms of their norms and particular gender norms. And there was an opportunity to do it in a country where most people have this prior and which happened to be Saudi Arabia. And that's how I ended up uh, doing it. Cool. Okay. So did you, um, when you were discussing this project way back um, at Harvard with your co-authors, did you have a definitive research question that was already precisely articulated? Or were you, to begin with, were you kind of thinking about taking the study in many different directions? Actually, this one, I think it was one of the cases, most of the people have different approaches to research. My approach has typically been I'm interested in one question uh, mm-hmm. substantially, substantively, and then I try to think of a good setting to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in some other people have a different approach, which is like they they have an interesting setting where they could answer a bunch of different questions and then define a good question. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time just, I, I guess, I maybe don't have enough focus. I don't know, but I have a hard time doing the second approach. So my approach is being, oh, yeah, there's a really good an idea that I'm really excited about. and. Where can I study this? And this was one of these cases where we kind of already knew from the start that we wanted to get at, but it required first establishing a fact that these misperceptions are there. So this is a project that was conditional on having that basic facts. So our first goal was from the beginning, just to establish that fact, convince ourselves before we ran the experiments mm-hmm. and do the whole thing that this was actually even true. Because, you know, we just didn't have any information about that, right? So that's how we started. So trying to run, we ran a few pilots in different ways and different places in Saudi Arabia just to see if we got systematically this pattern of men actually supporting it, female labor force participation outside of home, but not realizing that other men will also be supporting it. So that's how we started. Uh, We had an array in the field, you know, collecting small surveys just to get get a sense if this was the case. And we kept getting back the same findings. Yes, most people want it, uh, but most men want it, but they just you know, don't, don't think others do. And regardless of how the data was collected, face-to-face or with anonymity, regardless of who was conducting, a man, a woman, a foreigner, or a local, this is on the pilot, 
the, regardless of how the survey was framed, we just tried a bunch of things to see how robust these patterns were, whether there was, they would be killed with some different approach to the data collection. And nope, it wasn't. Then after a while, we realized, well, I think we're starting to really believe this. So I guess we can really go to the next step, which is scale this up and see if correction of these misperceptions actually leads to change in behavior. So that's kind of how the, the process went for, for this project. Okay, brilliant. And um, so when you then, when you'd established this fact, as you described it, you then use different types of tools in the paper to, mm-hmm. to kind of tell the story. So you have an experiment in a lab setting, you've got an online survey, and you're also, you present data from the Arab barometer. Did you plan to use all of these sources from the outset or did, did you kind of add elements as you, as you progress? Good, good question. I mean, yeah, I would say yes, because we viewed as the central piece, the experiment that we ran with groups of people, groups of men from, this, from the same neighborhoods. I like the real big piece of the experiment where you collect their, their beliefs, their opinions, and you randomly correct, you know, the perceptions for half of them. And we collect a, a first outcome, which is the willingness to sign up their wife for a, a job matching service uh, yeah. for the wife, where we have a lot of experimental control. And so, but from the start, we also wanted to collect some follow-up data just to see we view that the paper would be a stronger paper if beyond showing that this very short run outcome has changed, we could also show that this led to changes down the road in, in outcomes that are like I say harder outcomes, mm-hmm. job search behavior, which is also a way to establish that there were some real stakes de facto associated with this first decision that we measured. So we had a plan, we had budgeted even, you know, this follow-up survey. So that, that was clear to us. The error barometer, I believe no, I don't know exactly the timing, but I think pretty early in the game too, I think we kind of already, actually, yes, because it also helped, for, I think we already knew it because it helped, for, uh, helped us formulate the question that we asked in a survey ourselves. So yeah, we also had, you know, we found out about the average barometer, which is a similarly worded question. And we, we thought that, you know, it would have been very interesting to add this because it's an independent source of evidence. Now, the one thing that was from the start in our minds, uh, was the 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 replication with the online survey, right? So the so just to be clear, the the main experiment from the start we wanted to do it the follow up phone survey as well and the use of the air barometer. Now what we ended up as we started presenting the paper or even before presenting when we started like putting together a slide deck, we thought this is nice, but what could make this a stronger paper? It was like what are the kind of the the weaker points of the weaker aspects of the paper? We said well. One was, you know, some aspect of external validity in the sense that, well, we had a sample of 500 married, young married Saudi males from Riyadh. And for that sample, our findings were true. There was internal validity. But the question is, well, this is not a representative sample. How much can we generalize? Can you say that, oh, you find evidence that most men or most young men in Saudi Arabia are supportive of female labor force participation outside of home? Or are you just saying that, well, you happen to, st- to find a sample of 500 men for, for whom this is true, right? I mean, which the, the latter being much less compelling, right? So we said, you know, we, part of the paper is to establish this main fact to, to, as a starting point. And so I thought really benefit from being able to gen- generalize this to a broader, bigger sample, more representative of the country as a whole, at least young men in Saudi Arabia. So that's why we went for a larger sample, right? And then that's one of the reasons. And then, you know, there are a couple other things that we thought we could improve upon. 
the fact that you know some people could have been worried that there was potentially you know even though our experiment was anonymous and so on you always get the occasionally you know some person who says well maybe what about experimental demand effects social desirability bias i really didn't think it was an issue because again because it was anonymous it was unclear even if it, the direction of desirability would uh, uh, makes us make us actually find results where otherwise we wouldn't i think it would probably be the other way around would yeah. reduce the scope for results given their beliefs about what's what's appropriate in the country but you know and on top of it we had varied in pilots the way the survey is framed and so on and who was doing it and we kept finding the same patterns anyway we decided to to do it because of that by also randomly introducing a list experiment to elicit their opinions which is a, a method that gives more cover no, it increases the degree of plausible deniability. So it was really approach to say, okay, we have a paper potentially here. What are the things that we could improve upon? And it said, okay, can we package them in and have them like dealt with in one big online survey? And that's why we did it. And I think the paper actually got much stronger once we did this. So that's kind of how the process went about in terms of the different pieces. Mm-hmm. So thinking about um, the process of, I guess, writing that online survey in response to worries that people might have about the results that you're presenting, how much do you feel the project changed or altered or developed as a result of um, conversations with colleagues or presenting at seminars or conferences? Did you find that valuable? to? It's always extremely valuable to present it. And this was a project, though, that, I mean, it's a very simple project, right? So and that's a comment in general about experiments. My experience, I have much more limited experience with observational data projects, but I feel that with observational data project, it's constantly changing because there's always new things you can do. Yeah. Uh, whereas an experiment, most of the times, you basically, your hands are tied, right? You right. have a design, uh, you run it, and it, it is what it is at the end, right? There are few things you can change. You can, especially now in the era of pre-registration, yeah. even the extent to which one can actually, you know, show some heterogeneity, things one could do, or it, the extent's limited because, you know, if you hadn't thought about it before, it's not pre-registered and so on. And then, you know, so the, what can be done, typically for experiments, you can get feedback on how you frame. Someone may make you think of, of some additional reference you hadn't thought of, or some additional link with the literature, or, you know, in the limit, if there's something, it has happened before with other papers, where you realize that there's, you know, something, I mean, ideally when you design an experiment, you want to anticipate every possible yeah. confound and deal with them, right? But sometimes you don't. So I've had situations before where I was like, yeah, I probably need to go back and collect some additional data or, you know, some, so in the limit, you might, you know, get some feedback that would lead you toward actually collect more data, either a replication or, or just, you know, a follow-up survey dealing with potential confounds. And I think I, I've been in the situation before, so I think it's very useful, but I think something that is extremely useful for people who are designing and running experiments is to get a lot of feedback before you go in and run them, right? Especially for field experiments or lab in the field or things that you do that are, require a lot of planning and a lot of investment and time and money. You kind of want to have, have it clear in your head what you have to do and so on. Uh, be very sure of your design because it's extremely costly to, after you've done it, to, to make any change, right? So I think people should not be shy about discussing their designs or even presenting the design before running, because that's when you get a lot of important feedback. Another thing, part that is very important is, is the piloting, right? 
you learn a lot of valuable lessons from piloting in and many of these lessons are just really in terms of implementation right is it feasible to do this and you learn something about does this wording make sense are they understanding the treatment and just uh debriefing and so on because when you're on an experiment uh the challenge of getting a no result is how to interpret a no result right you never know if the result is no because i guess you reject your hypothesis that what you thought was the case is not the case or it's just that there was actually no experiment in the sense that people did not understand the treatment didn't move what it was supposed to move and therefore you were not able to either confirm or reject your initial hypothesis right so so it's very important to if there's a way for the experiment to include the manipulation check, right, to test, let's call it a quote-unquote first stage, that's good. But many times that's not possible. So a pilot helps you understand that before you commit the time and resources to run the full thing. So really checking with people, presenting, discussing, getting feedback on the design, and then running a pilot whenever possible just to get a better sense of these things, I think are crucial steps uh, in, the whole, in the process. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. And I'm sure people will find it extremely useful when they're thinking about planning their own experiments. Did you want to add anything else? Or I think with experiments, it's such a our, our rich approach to answer questions in economics. And many times, if you know, I was thinking about someone's a grad student with a limited budget, a limited amount of time, a person might feel discouraged to run an experiment. But you know, I think it's important to think, you know, that it is still possible to run experiments, even if you're on a tight budget and, you know, with a short amount of time available. There are a number of questions that one can answer, test economic theory or uh, find tests for the relevant mechanism in a setting that if one thinks about experiments that where the outcome is a decision that can be collected on the spot. So it doesn't need to wait too long. So really think about, you know, is there any way to I can run an experiment that is linked to theory? And where the outcome is something collect on the spot, a decision, like in ours, would you like to sign up your wife for the service or not? I had other experiments where the decision was, would you like to sign up for this essay college preparation course? Or, you know, the decision you collect on the spot where you have a lot of experimental control can reduce, you know, the amount of time you need and the amount of resources you need to, to put into the experiments. And another thing that I think is important for people who are thinking about running experiments is that one could actually combine yeah, nice, even if it's more a lab-like experiment with observational data, one doesn't need to do so, to pick a camp and stick with it, right? So many times you have, say, you know, some nice observational result. It's you're not super sure the mechanism. It's quite, it's suggestive, quite convincing, but not other way there. One can start with that to motivate and then have a nice little experiment to really get at the bottom of it and the, and the mechanisms. My experience has been that many times people believe more the experiment, which is clean, but in a limited setting when there's some complementary observational evidence from a broader setting. So that helps strengthen the experiment, but they also tend to believe the observational data part more because perhaps they were not super convinced of the identification of the mechanism, but you know, there's an, an experiment that really confirms the patterns and, and establish some mechanisms. So, this combination, I think, is a good one that, you know, it's in, it, you know, you can run a, a small scale experiment that is clean and, and testing tightly linked to theory, which will complement some observational data. So I think it's possible to combine both approaches. So I just message, especially for grad students who are worried about, oh, I only have a few years and have money, I maybe I should run an experiment. I think, you know, there are ways to incorporate experiments into 
research uh, that are ways that are not extremely time consuming and, and, and resource consuming. It's just, you know, just trying to push. <laughs> I think it's good. Experiments are, uh, are a super cool tool. Thank you so much. Thank for you. And for inspiring grad students to um, take this kind of research approach. Um, Thank you. It was, it was great uh, talking to you.